0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy, but today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert.
1: Good morning, this is Carol Bossert, welcome to Museum Life, and I am going to uh, assure you this is going to be a great show today. Uh, as I've mentioned many times before on the show, one of the greatest things about doing what I do is getting an opportunity to meet uh, people that I haven't had an opportunity to really get to know uh, well, and uh, this is such uh, one of those uh, wonderful opportunities. Uh, today I'm going to be talking with Rebecca Schulman Hurst. Uh, Many of you know her as I first met her as the uh, blogger at Museum Questions, uh, asking really, really interesting uh, questions and getting really interesting uh, comments back. And so we're going to spend uh, a little some of the program today talking about some of those topics but Rebecca is so much more than that she is currently the director of the Peoria Playhouse Children's Museum which just opened to the public this past June, we're going to talk a little bit about what that's been like and um, she also is an author beyond blogging Uh, she wrote Looking at Art in the Classroom that was published in 2013 uh, by the Teachers College Press And she has also been the guest editor for the uh, Journal of Museum Education, uh, uh, one in particular Uh, an issue called Critical Thinking that was published in 2007. So I know you'll want to continue to touch base with Rebecca, and you can reach her through museumquestions.com, which is the Museum Questions blog. Uh, Also, check out what she's doing at Peoria Playhouse, uh, peoriaplayhouse.org. So with all of that uh, great background, and Rebecca, I haven't even scratched the surface of your uh, of your career trajectory—I'll let you do that. But welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you today.
1: Yes, I as as you and I were saying before we went on uh, on air, uh, we uh, we don't know each other well, but we. We believe that we have a lot in common in how we approach our our work and how we approach uh, just thinking about things and and uh, being curious learners. So it's it's uh, it's great to have a kindred uh, soul on the show today. Um, so why don't we, as I do with all of my guests, uh, if you would be so kind as to just share your career trajectory? And it it's fine if you go back a little little ways and just tell us how you got started.
2: In the museum world? Um, so I, uh, I thought I was going to be, first I thought I was going to work in children's publishing, and then I thought I was going to be a classroom teacher. And as I was trying to figure it out, um, and I had many, many part time jobs while living in Washington, D.C., um, one of uh, my jobs, or it was actually a volunteer position at that time, I, I ended up at the Capitol Children's Museum in Washington, D.C., which actually does not exist anymore, sadly, but was the museum that I had grown up going to, um, the Children's Museum in Washington, D.C., and I loved volunteering there, and as I was applying to schools, the director of that museum told me that one could get a degree in museum education. Who knew? So I ended up studying at George Washington and then went from there to work at the Guggenheim Museum where I worked for about 11 years, um, most of that time managing a program called Learning Through Art that sends teaching artists into elementary schools around New York City, public elementary schools. Um, And then I moved from there to the Noguchi Museum in Queens, New York, um, as head of education, and then in 2013, um, my husband and I decided that we were we were ready for something new after 25 years in New York, and we relocated to Peoria, Illinois, simply because we fell in love with the community here. Um, and I consulted for a while until uh, the, Peoria, the Peoria Park District was hiring um, for a new director for the Children's Museum, and then I was very fortunate to um, end up in that position, which has been wonderful.
1: That. That's a great story, and it underlines so many of uh, the themes that, that uh, emerge when I ask a uh, guest that question. And, and two, that I just want to highlight to listeners uh, one, um, uh, volunteering. Uh, particularly uh, when you're you're starting your career and you're not quite sure what you might be interested in, always volunteering for something. Um, one, it it uh, helps the community, and it also leads to some very interesting uh, discoveries about yourself and what you're interested in. And also, thank goodness for that director of the. Uh, Capital Children's Museum, who uh, mentored you and uh, and and uh, brought took you on your way. I was going to say, I love the Capital Children's Museum, and and it was my son's favorite museum. It was the only museum that he felt that we should have a a, a membership to because it was it was so wonderful. And I too am very sad that uh, uh, that was that no longer exists in our community. Uh, but Rebecca, so can I add to
2: what you're saying? That, that oh, in absolutely! Volunteering, I think it's really wonderful to volunteer at a small museum. And I know that when I worked at the Guggenheim, compared to the Noguchi Museum, we would get so many applications for volunteering and volunteers and interns. But in fact, volunteering or interning at a at a smaller museum opens up worlds of possibility. And at the Capital Children's Museum, I was able to um, create single-handedly programming around um, exhibitions and really take on um, tasks that I'm shocked that anyone would give a volunteer. I hope I did a good job. Um, So I just want to encourage anyone sort of starting off on their career and thinking about volunteering to consider smaller museums.
1: That's such an important point. Thank you very much for bringing that up. Um, So... What do you think have been in reflecting back what do you think have been some of your greatest influences in uh, how you now think about uh, museums and their their place in society
2: um, That feels like such a big question to me and it's something I think I think that is sort of in a way at the heart of museum questions is my grappling with that question um, are museums the uh, holders of Artifacts are they something different? If they are something different, what sets them apart from other other organizations? Um, but I have been reading lately a lot of Stephen Weil's work, um, which I think is so important. Um, uh, he writes about museums and the public good, arguing that that is essential uh, to what a museum is um, from an entirely different. Sort of set of influences. I think a lot about the Jewish idea of tikkun olam, this idea that it is our responsibility to repair the world. And i thought about that a lot with the conversations that have happened around museums and Ferguson, and how do museums become a part of that? How do museums help make the world a better place? And what does that look like? And how does that how does that fall in line with the other mandates of museums? Um, I also think a lot about goals, um, and I I think I had a a conversation in link, on LinkedIn at one point <laughs> um, where so many people told me that really the, the primary um, mandate at a museum is to keep the lights on, to keep, to keep enough income coming into the museum that you could keep it running. And I, I vehemently disagree with that. I think that you need to have a reason to exist, that a purpose, whether it's a purpose to a specific program, a purpose to your institution, um, and, and everything needs to be in line with that.
1: That is so, well, I was going to say it's so interesting, but it it, it to me, it, that's that trivializes it. I I think that you have put uh, your finger on one of the biggest challenges we face within our organizations. Uh, and I w- just reminded me that I was reading an article yesterday in the uh, nonprofit quarterly, uh, looking, which is a wonderful journal, by the way, if you're looking to look uh, a little bit more broadly about the nonprofit sector. And and uh, an author was talking about the um, pro- what a, uh, the problem of this sense of imperpetuity. And, uh, you know, whether whether we're a foundation or uh, a museum, we think about this sense of being in perpetuity and that that, in a a way, as you've just said, can uh, sort of degenerate into a conversation about, well, we need to keep the lights on and we need to keep the HVAC going to protect the collection. But they're really sort of then skirting the question of why. Right, right. Why is it worth it? So- so I th- we'll come back around, I think, to some of those questions, particularly um, later in the show when we talk about your uh, experiences of opening, you know, developing and opening the uh, Peoria Playhouse uh, Children's Museum, as well as what, you know, what that, what that means to be uh, the director of, uh, and uh, leadership issues. But before then, let's talk about one of the other obvious questions I can ask, and that is what prompted? You to begin blogging.
2: I started Museum Questions because I was consulting, um, and I was living in Peoria, Illinois. So blogging served both as a way to get my name out there, or try to get my name out there, um, and a way to uh, be constantly thinking and communicating with museum professionals while living in a community where there are not a ton of museum professionals. Um, and I have to I have to express my gratitude to Gretchen Jennings, who I had met many years ago, very briefly, but placed a sort of cold call to and asked her if she would talk to me about blogging, and she was so helpful. Um, so so I, yeah, those are the two reasons that I began blogging. And I've kept going because I, I love learning from the people who do guest posts and the people that I interview, and I find that it continues to be a way that I can think through ideas.
1: Well, and I think that... One of the things, again, we were talking about this before uh, we, we started the, the show, is that one of the things that sets your blog apart, uh, perhaps you're you know, similar to maybe Paul Orselli's exhibit tricks, is that you actually interview people on your blog. So the blog is not just, uh, you know, your, your ideas, but, uh, it's sharing others. And I love, uh, the, the times that you, uh, you do, uh, interviews. And, and in fact, I will admit here on the air that I have, uh, gotten several of my guest ideas from, uh, reading some of your interviews. So, uh, thank you very much. I think, uh, it also reminds me of how lonely and isolating consulting can be, and it frankly it doesn 't matter where you are whether you 're in washington d c or Peoria illinois uh,
2: it's um, it's sometimes just you and the cat yeah <laughs> yes um, and i one of the my goals with interviews originally um, was and continues to be to bring in ideas from other fields as well, so I hope that that it allows, in a way, for even larger dialogue than working in an institution might automatically afford you, in that by interviewing people who come from, say, the cognitive psychology world or um, not a nonprofit planning world, you really get to, to think about how can we learn from others? <laughs>
1: you know that too is so very important and I th- and I think that uh, blogs and some of our social media um, opportunities are are really addressing one of the biggest challenges that I, I certainly found when I worked in museums and I find it still as I as I work with clients across the country it, uh, there is a an isolating factor of being in a museum and some of the most interesting Research that is going on in what museums mean to society is occurring in university departments that uh, are not the museum studies department. They are, as you say, the the psychology department or the sociology department uh, and all sorts of other. uh, areas where where uh, researchers are really looking at, as you say, going back to your earlier question, that sense of public good or public value, and it is challenging to know where to look for that uh, information. I think your blog really does that, uh, bringing in some of these other disparate uh, people. How
2: do you how do you find your guests? Um, it's probably just luck. Uh, let's see, one of, there were some people I knew I wanted to interview when I started the blog. Daniel Willingham was one of them. I have used his, he's a cognitive psychologist at UVA, and I have used his work, um, which focuses on what do we know about how people learn and what are the implications for classroom teachers. Um, and, and I've been sharing that with people by forwarding his articles and, and such and, and buying his book and sharing it with my staff for many, many years. Um, it's often friends of friends. So, for example, Kylie Pepler from um, in Indiana, from, from Bloomington, who I interviewed, was a friend of um, Tracy Truels, who's the curator of education at the Oklahoma City Museum of Art and a former intern at the Guggenheim. Or um, Lane Beckus is a neighbor, um, and we have a partnership with his department here at the Playhouse i at Bradley, so I think it's luck. But Carol, after our interview, I'm going to ask you who you know who I should talk to. So, <laughs> <laughs> networking as well. It is.
1: It is. That's that's uh, that is wonderful. It's uh, as you know, I just uh, celebrated two years doing the show, and I when and I admit when I first started out, I thought, gee. How am I going to find all these people? And uh, it's true. One one person leads to another person leads to another person, and so much of it is is also former guests saying, "Here's somebody that is really interesting and, and that you should talk to." So it it does sort of build on a, a life of its of its own. Um, before we go to break, I want to ask you one more blog question. Uh, just sort of the technical aspects of it. But uh, how do you keep going? I mean, you know, uh, my life is. It's sort of easy in that regard because I have an airtime every Friday that's always staring me in the face, and uh, a little bit of nervous fear goes a long way to make sure that I get everything done I need to to uh, to do these broadcasts. But on a blog, you know, it could just it it could just sit there, and no one would be the wiser. So how do you how do you keep yourself motivated?
2: Um, you know what I love it. I sometimes start to lose motivation, and then I'll find something that I want to write about and realize how valuable it's been. I really think through writing, and I change my mind a lot, and and that happens because I'm writing. I've definitely slowed down. Um, I used to post every week, and now I'm posting every two weeks. Um, Occasionally, I'll post every week, but that's rare. Um, So, it's really, it's just been so valuable to me personally, I think, is, is how I keep going with it.
1: That's great. That's that's wonderful. Uh, I, too, find writing very therapeutic. Uh, It helps me sort of organize my thoughts. Um, But I I will admit, perhaps, I don't know if this is a generational thing or not, I tend to want to hold the pieces. I have probably five blogs in draft that I never really want to hit the publishing button on, so perhaps you'll... uh, You'll be my inspiration to just sort of get those things out there and uh, get people
2: talking about things. It's interesting. That's what happened to me to the one about storytelling. I was working on that for a year and I never felt like I could hit post because I never felt like I either quite captured what I wanted to say or was sure what I wanted to say or knew enough. But then I found that when I did post, as long you know, I I ended up that one couching that one as. By introducing it as saying, I, um, I'm not. I'm not sure I've captured this yet. That it's led down a whole road of really interesting um, responses and comments um, and new, new ideas. So sometimes it's the ones that are hardest to write that are the most fruitful
1: that's that's a very good point too and when we come back from break uh, you and I are going to really delve into that one uh, as well as a couple of other topics that you've uh, posted on that uh, storytelling topic is very near and dear to my heart as well so uh, we will do that I promise but first we're going to take a break and when we come back more with Rebecca Schulman Hertz uh, remember you can always uh, catch her writing at museumquestions.com Um, and I would highly recommend that you do that. Uh, If you are not a subscriber uh, to her blog yet, it uh, really is a a wonderful way of uh, shaking the cobwebs out of some of our our thinking about museums. So we will be back in a moment. More with Rebecca. Uh, This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Stay tuned.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations, no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712.
0: Are you ready for an anything-goes, hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? And look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
3: Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time, the number one Internet Talk Station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned in to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call one 866 472 That's 1 866 472 5788 or send an email to carol.bosser at Verizon.net. Now, back to museum life.
1: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and today I am having a great conversation with Rebecca Schulman Hertz, who is the current director of the Peoria Playhouse Children's Museum, and she is also a wonderful blogger at Museum Questions. And uh, before break, uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, the the blogging um, sphere, the uh, the challenges and opportunities and excitements of of blogging. And and Rebecca you were uh, beginning to talk about a, a particular uh, blog that blog post that you did recently about storytelling and so I'd, I'd sort of like to uh, to maybe delve into that uh, a little bit more but before we do I, I just want to say that one reason I like your blog so much and your writing style is that it's very open. And it's honest, and it's peer to peer. I think some of the other blogs uh, that I tend to read are really interesting, uh, but there's a there's a tone of a little bit of a superiority. Sense Mm -hmm. and uh, um, I, you know, I, uh, I, I, I get that. Um, You know, writing is a is is a real challenge to get the right voice, and I think that you've really hit it. And and any writer who starts out a a public post by saying, "I'm not sure if I'm getting this right," uh, is really earns stars in in my book of of being someone who is uh, is very courageous. So, thank you very much for uh, all the writing Mm -hmm. you do. Thank you. So let's talk about storytelling in museum exhibits. Mm-hmm. You go You go first.
2: Okay. <laughs> um, I think I've been struggling to think about it ever since I visited the Lincoln Museum in Springfield, shortly after I moved to Peoria in 2013. I think I was there in fall 2013. Um, because certainly storytelling had been... It has been a big conversation in the museum field and across the museum field, so in development departments as well as in um, curatorial departments um, and education departments. And, and I felt like I really got to see storytelling in action in, in exhibition design and, and curatorial choices at the Lincoln Museum, and it, it makes me very nervous Um, for those who haven't been there the Lincoln Museum and I have to admit up front that I didn't have enough time to spend there I wish I had gotten more time to spend there I only had about a half an hour so I missed large swaths of it um, and I walked through the part that I walked through was really telling the story of Lincoln's life and so storytelling is appropriate the way it's done there is through dioramas and the dioramas really absorb you and make you feel like you're in the moment and they are so powerful Um, but it is, it is, while being a truly powerful experience, feels slightly antithetical to me to what I expect from museums, um, having, having thought a great deal, particularly while at the Guggenheim about museums and critical thinking, and then while at the Noguchi about museums and philosophical thinking, um, and how, how those are the kinds of thinking that museums have the power to provoke that other areas of our life don't necessarily have the power to provoke. Um, I also, I feel like this is, a, I'm, I'm mixing everything up and not, not, uh, articulating things as, as clearly as I wish I were, but another huge influence on me about this was, um, my college thesis was about, was trying to explore the impact of, uh, television on the novel. How has novel writing changed in an era that is dominated by television? And while at age 20 or 21, I don't think I necessarily nailed that, plus it's constantly changing and the Internet didn't really even exist when I was in college, um, I read a great deal about um, this idea of how the medium shapes the message. And so the tactics that we choose for exhibitions shape the message that we tell in ways that we might not even intend. And I don't think there's a lot written about what kind of medium exhibitions are. There's a great deal written about oral storytelling or television or or, books, um, written books. Um, but exhibitions are their own medium as well. So those are some things that I was thinking about, and it, it really took me until um, – it's funny, Carol, you were talking about how you know, every week you have a, a program staring you in the face, and you, it keeps you going to, to know that, that you're going to have to produce for every week, and I, I had a, a month where I was so busy at work and trying to figure out what my next blog post would be, and I kept coming back to this one that I'd been unable to write and just decided, I'm going to put it out there. I don't know if I have it right, but I just need to start the conversation about storytelling and its role in museums.
1: That's, uh, and I, and I, I, am so glad you did, uh, because it, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, so let's just take a few moments, and, and if you're willing, let's unpack some of your ideas, which I thought were really very well uh, well articulated. It's just that there's an awful lot there, so maybe uh, together we can tease it apart a little bit. Let's maybe go back and start with, with a, uh, the idea of the diorama. Uh, now I, you know, there, uh, there's been a lot recently written about dioramas, and I um, am a true fan of the natural history diorama. Uh, I think, and Susie Wilkening and I have talked about it a lot, and she's actually done the research uh, to to show that that it d- that. Uh, those natural history dioramas draw you in, and it and it gives you an opportunity to see things maybe in a different way, in a different style. It can transport you. Uh, perhaps it can transform you. I'm not. I'm not quite uh, sure anymore, even what that word means. Uh, but so you're so in. In the, at the Lincoln Museum, they used dioramas to tell the story of Lincoln. Can you just give an example of what one of those dioramas
2: look like? Yeah, there's a really powerful one that's a slave auction. Wow. For example. And there's another one. The first one that you get to is, uh, I believe, Lincoln in the cabin in which he grew up. Um, or there's one that's Lincoln in the doorway of a bedroom in the White House while his wife is at the bedside of his very ill son who will die a day or two or within a few days. Um, There's his coffin. So I mentioned the slave auction first because one of our teens who worked here over the summer actually mentioned that as an incredibly powerful museum experience for her that actually made her never want to go back to the Lincoln Museum because it was so hard for her to look at. This was an African-American teenager. Um... And I, it's one thing that actually made me feel the power of that diorama was hearing it through her eyes. And I think that for anything in a museum to have that kind of power is phenomenal and wonderful. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned natural history dioramas because I also love those. And I, I think there's a difference. Um, in, and I haven't looked at the book Exhibiting Cultures in a long time, but I think this has come up when people try to put um, cultural uh, people in natural history museums. When you show an animal in a diorama, you are um, able to tell a great deal about... it's. There aren't... Hmm
1: it's not so you are a
2: single facet of a very multifaceted experience in the same way as you are with a human because that animal lives in that environment and you get a chance to see it in its environment um much the same way as you would if i've never been on a safari but i imagine if you went on a safari and saw an animal it's not i don't think that there's a huge difference between if you saw that animal eating or sleeping or um at different points in its life that is is not the experience of many of these animals. And perhaps there are scientists out there who will tell me I'm completely wrong. And I'd love to hear from you if that is true. But when you show um, Abraham Lincoln in the doorway and his wife by the bedside of a sick son, you are showing a very small moment in the lives of these people that becomes so powerful, it almost overwhelms the rest of the story.
1: That, I think, is is the point. Uh, and, and in fact just to uh, belabor the Natural History uh, Museum analogy just a little little bit further, uh, there uh, uh, dioramas that used to show one male and one female lion as if they were uh, you know, a pair uh, for life, so to speak, uh, really was uh, a an attempt, um, perhaps inadvertently or uh, subconsciously, to, you know, decisions were made that reinforced a, uh, a perception about lions. And this was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, before we had uh, all, all sorts of wonderful uh, animal photography and, and uh, uh uh, better, better research uh, that was going into the public sector, but you know the I, that, that uh, a lion pride doesn't work like that, uh, and it was sort of an anthropomorphism, uh, anthropogenic look at uh, at lions that uh, you know, and then the diorama is there. It's making a statement, and then it's very you know, it doesn't matter what you write or what video you put out there, uh, the diorama trumps all. And so I think that uh, in that regard, you are correct that, uh, that that particular medium almost needs to be used with care in the sense of uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was that was one of the points that, that you were trying to make. Another point I, I heard you you made though is, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the uh, a desire to tell a story. Um, if you're telling one story, that means that you're making decisions for other stories that you can't tell, and uh, for. Uh, it seems as if maybe then that uh,
2: reduces the complexity of the characters. Yes, yes. And in fact, I just want to share um, the moment where I think the Lincoln Museum succeeds really incredibly brilliantly is a diorama of the Emancipation Proclamation, the, the, the discussions around the Emancipation Proclamation, where there are, I you don't know, maybe 10 or 12 men at the table. And for each one, there's a little plaque that explains how, in, in two or three sentences, how they felt about the Emancipation Proclamation and why. And it complicates the question brilliantly. So, for example, some people were against the Emancipation Proclamation because they felt it didn't go far enough. And some people were um, for it simply because they felt like it solved a problem, but they, didn't, they weren't particularly interested in freeing the slaves, but it would, you know... You know, for, there was some practical reason that they wanted it, and I'm not a Lincoln scholar, clearly. Um, but, but you get 12 perspectives instead of one. And I don't know if you'd call that a form of storytelling. It's one of the things that I talked about in a later post when I interviewed Lane Bethes. Um And it, it's a very, to me, it's a very different impact than a diorama where you're getting a single perspective. But the single perspective is much more emotionally powerful.
1: Yes, uh, yes, and that is certainly something that we strive for uh, in in museum exhibits is to make that sort of um, that emotional uh, connection. Uh, Gretchen Jennings, who you mentioned before, might consider that the uh, the empathetic thread uh, that uh, allows us to see uh, see into other people's lives uh, that can be very powerful, but. One of the other things that you mentioned which I find so so fascinating is this idea of um, of of storytelling and this medium is the message that it whether it's a diorama or not it can um, It it can become manipulative, and I think that that's my word, not yours, and that it it uh, in some ways it can become like a like a movie.
3: Mm-hmm. which
1: is is great entertainment and you'll learn a lot. I mean, if we want to continue with the Lincoln uh, analogy, you know the the uh, the, the movie that, that uh, about Lincoln that was out a couple of years ago had some accuracies, had some inaccuracies, but it was a two hour movie. I mean you can't get an entire life in there. And so you get these little impressions. but is that really the? the role or the best role or the
2: only role for a museum exhibit? And I think that's exactly the question that we need to be asking. Another museum that I loved as a child was the Salem Witch Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. And I don't know if it's, I think it's still there, I don't know if it's the same, but it was a series of lighted dioramas that told the story. There was nothing museum-y about it. It was, it was, a still movie. You know, one diorama would light up with a voiceover and then the next one would light up. And I was fascinated by the Salem Witch Trials, and I'm sure it was partly because of that museum. But, um, is, what, what are we trying to do as museums? And not that every museum has to do the same thing. Um, but I, do museums have an obligation to engage people in, in thinking critically, um, and deeply about issues or, is the role of museums to convince people that history was a certain way and to feel a certain way about it? And and I fall on the, to the towards the first answer there.
1: Well, and I I think that that is that's a critical question, and and perhaps uh, uh, you know maybe the answer is yes, it is all those things uh, and different things at different times, but I. I think that, that uh, the, the way you phrase that is that there is danger in uh, telling too tightly of a message story, particularly when it uh, inadvertently, let's just say it's inadvertent, uh, perpetuates uh, certain uh, thoughts about history or who, who were the winners or losers in history or who was involved in history and, and who had the power. Uh, and certainly I think that those are issues that we are having to deal with when we think about race uh, issues and whose history was it uh, and who was telling that history that I, I think often in museum exhibits, we either don't have the, uh, maybe sometimes storytelling traps us. Would that be safe to say?
2: Maybe. Um, I have to think about that. It's interesting. I, have, I thought a lot about this in the context of, um, of museums addressing Ferguson and really trying to understand whether people wanted to convince people to think a different way or a certain way or if they wanted to open up dialogue. Um, and... And feeling like we just need to be aware of what it is we're trying to do um, and and how our tools help or hinder us um, rather than just thinking, oh, storytelling, that's a great tool
1: i I think that you are raising so many important issues, uh, and that yes, it is. Uh, it behooves us to go back and question our assumptions. What do we mean by storytelling as a tool? What do we mean by interpretation? And, yeah. uh, you know, because if you're going to interpret things one way, that means you're not interpreting it, it the other way. And, and as you say, um, who knows? Who who right. is the who's the arbiter of, of that, uh, and also um, particularly for our research colleagues out there, um, it's there. We're not we we think we know a lot about what exhibits are doing, but maybe there are some other very serious questions that need to be addressed. I think uh, Rebecca, you really are uh, identifying uh, many of those. Thank you. So uh, with that, um, we could talk about storytelling. Um, you know, I always re- always think of that word, whether it's uh, s- uh, storytelling or content, and uh, always always think about uh, a subchan talking about wimpy words. And boy, isn't it true? Vocabulary is 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 just uh, uh, sort of our our demon at times um, mm-hmm. as we as we try to struggle with with uh, with what we're thinking about and talking about. So. But uh, let us leave this for a minute. We are going to take our second break. And when we come back, uh, more with Rebecca. And we're going to, uh, she's going to share with us her experiences of of being a director of a newly opened children's museum. So please stay tuned. Uh, Remember, you can always... uh, Connect with me at carol.bossert at verizon.net and, uh, or send me a tweet at, at @musewrite. I love to hear from each and every one of you. It's uh, wonderful to continue the conversation during the week. So we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life.
3: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788 or send an email to carol.bossert at Verizon.net. Now, back to museum life.
1: Welcome back uh, to Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert, and I'm here talking today with Rebecca Schulman-Hertz, a great, uh, wonderful blogger at uh, Museum Questions. And during the last segment, we talked a little bit about the real pesky question of uh, what does museum storytelling uh, really look like? And is it always a good thing? And is it just a tool that we have uh, blindly assumed is, is good and sometimes use without really understanding all of its consequences. I know Rebecca is going to continue to uh, noodle on this topic uh, on her blog. I, I don't want to uh, you know, promise, promise anything, Rebecca, on your behalf, but I just have a funny feeling you're going to continue uh, uh, writing about this until and, and uh, you, uh, you, you break through some of your, uh, your ideas and thoughts.
2: I think that's true, and I should, I should say, in case anyone out there is listening, if you have very strong feelings about it, maybe an exhibition designer, um, I would love to hear from, from people who think they would have something to contribute to this, this thinking through of storytelling.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think that that, that would be great. Uh, so uh, make, make sure that you connect with Rebecca after the show. But Rebecca, in this last segment, um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your, uh, your recent success as opening the Peoria Playhouse Children's Museum. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Now um, I know it just opened in June, so it's probably a little early to see. You know, to say how how is it going? I mean, it's you know it's open and you're still standing. But uh, uh, just can, can you can you just share a little bit uh, about that uh, the experience of of uh, creating and opening um, uh, and you know the decisions that you made uh, during that process. Um
2: yes, there there are so many different ways to answer that question, Carol. I have to I think through this. But um so we we had a phenomenally successful first few months. We had um something like twenty five thousand visitors in our first hundred days and um we've sold fourteen hundred memberships. So it's a really nice way to open a museum. Um really exciting. But at the same time, I would say on a personal level, I learned so much about children's museums, which is not my background. Despite my initial um, museum experience volunteering in a children's museum, my background is is art museums. Um, So I found out things like exhibitions break. Kids will break anything they can. (laughs) And so we went through, you know, three months of break, fix, break, fix, break, fix, and now everything is so much more solid than it was when we opened. I also discovered that um, being director of a museum was going to expose every single weakness I have, Um, and a lot of it has to do with um, trying to wrap my mind around finances and earned income versus contributed income and budgeting and anything to do with math. Um, So that's been a really interesting uh, experience as well, and um I have had some fabulous conversations recently with people who have great expertise in these areas who've recommended resources, and I'm so excited to get my hands on some of the books and and groups and publications that have been recommended to me
1: that's uh that's very candid and 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 wonderful. Um. Of you to to say those things. I mean, I I, I have been through uh, several openings myself as uh, you know, working in museums, and of course have seen the effects on uh, what a museum uh, exhibition um, and opening installation installation and opening uh, uh, what it does to uh, to individuals and collectives. Uh, it's uh, it's a, it's wonderful and it's tiring and it's exhausting and. And it does sort of take every bit out of you um, what, what, is, what has been the biggest challenge other than the math uh, in, in, <laughs> in shifting from uh, you know so being the you know, director of a department in a large institution as you were uh, to, to now being the leader the director uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a smaller institution but but also as a as a startup.
2: Yeah. Well one of the biggest challenges in a startup is you start with almost those systems in place. And so the first few months were exhausting partly because um you have to think through everything from scratch and develop those systems. And we have a phenomenal team here and we just did so much work those first few months to figure out how do you handle when people come and ask for X or Y or Z or um, how do you process distribution reports in this setting? What information do we want to include for our own records? Um, so so that's, that's, I think, one of the huge challenges of a startup. Um, one of the challenges in going from a, um, managing a department to managing a museum um, for me has been that I need to let go of education. And museum education is so near and dear to my heart and um, really the the full function of a children's museum is at heart educational, and one could argue any museum, that um, it's very hard for me to figure out how to both lead and let go.
1: Interesting. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, you know, there has been the phenomena over the course of my career, and I, I, I don't see it changing um, anytime soon, of bringing in uh, someone from outside of the museum uh, community, uh, either from academia uh, or from uh, industry, to be that director with the theory, I guess, that that person knows the math and knows the the business side of things. Um, and that 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 person can rely on everyone else to understand the the museum uh, side, as you said, you know, sort of the the mission uh, and goal side of it, but um, it. So, now that you've had to make that tough transition, uh, do you think that that's a, a reasonable model, or do you find that having been in the trenches and been in education, you really, as a leader, have uh, that sixth sense that's necessary for really leading a museum?
2: so interesting that you ask that, because I have been thinking about this so much lately. I um... It always made me very angry in the past when I would see someone brought in from business to lead a museum, and now I get it. I get it. <laughs> um, you know, a huge portion of my job has to do with finances and um, development and marketing, and those are not museum-specific skills. Um, but that said, there was just an article, and I wish I could remember where I read it, about how um, about what is it in this day and age, this information age, that... Um, that people need and what are the characteristics that, um, what are the characteristics you need going in and what information can be learned? And I would say that um, my experience here is sort of leading me to think that the things that that a museum, the things that I would want to look for in a museum director are passion and vision um, and that, that, and and an ongoing curiosity and interest in learning, Um, and then which skill set you come in with and which you learn is maybe maybe less important because um, budgeting is something that everybody who does it learns at some point and gets better at. Um, Whereas, you know, caring about what a museum is and does um, or really having a vision for what this particular museum can mean to to the city that it's in or the community that it's in, I think those are much harder to learn.
1: and and as you you are you pointed out, you know that you need to learn some things and you have sought out uh, good resources to, to help, them, help you learn them. Uh, and I think that, that that's a wonderful definition of, of leadership. Um, okay, this is a tough question. I'm sorry I'm asking it in the last two minutes of the show, but if there's one thing that you could do differently um, in uh, uh, you know, opening this museum, uh, what, what would it be?
2: Mm, it's a great question. Um, I think it's one that I could probably better answer when we get to the end of the year. Um, one of the things that I think is, is problematic uh, in my approach, maybe, to the the Playhouse is that there are so many things that I want to change, and change is hard for people. So realizing, for example, that our open hours are maybe not the ideal open hours, and we should tweak our schedule or that um, the times at which we offer our programs are not the best times to be offering those specific programs, Um, and so we want to change them. So at some point in the next six months, I need to figure out how to roll out a lot of changes without confusing people. But that said, I don't know that it would have been possible to... I guess it's the same as with my blog. I don't know that it's, it's possible always to answer questions correctly up front. I think one has to be open to change. Um so I don't know what that I would have been able to do these things differently up front. I just know that um, that there are a lot of a lot of tweaks that come down the pike.
1: And again, I think that that is uh, probably one of the most honest statements uh, that, uh, that I've heard a museum leader make. You know, we, we so often, we get lulled into the what I think is a false presentation mode uh, at some of the, the large national or regional conferences where, where a speaker has had perhaps a year to think about something, and it, always, and, uh, and it always sounds as if they knew all the answers before they walked in, and of course, as any good scientist or museum director knows you don't know the answers that's why you're doing the project right
2: right right and And in fact one of our best informants in terms of what's working and not working has been visitors and we have gotten so much fantastic visitor feedback and not knowing the answers at first and being willing to admit that allows visitors to be part of the process of shaping in the museum in a way that I think benefits the institution on so many levels
1: so well said and uh, with that uh, we are going to have to close the show today Rebecca it has been such a pleasure uh, having an, an open uh, conversation with you and I will continue to enjoy reading your blog and commenting on it and how uh, uh, your blog helps me refine my thinking uh, and uh, as well so thank you very much and I know we're going to share contacts so don't be surprised Museum Life guests guess if uh, some of you are going to be interviewed on Rebecca's blog um, in the near future and vice versa. So uh, thank you again, Rebecca, for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much, Carol.
1: And we will be back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Until then, uh, please let me know what you think about the show and who else should be on it and what issues we should be talking about. And until then, this is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.